Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we're going to be revisiting a series that Dr. Newfeld did called Finding Forgiveness for the Worst of Sins. So let's turn in our Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12 as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message when power corrupts. I've been thinking about sin recently. Now, I know we all sin. 1 John 1.10 says, If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Well, fair enough. We all sin, even believers in Jesus who are committed to him and walking in the Spirit, even so we sometimes sin. You know, it might be anger or pride not yet defeated, some area in our lives not yielded to the glory of God. Lurking in our hearts may be the lust that must be surrendered to him. I could go on and on. The pathway of sanctification will not be complete until we receive our glorification, that is, after our death. And yet we press on, always laying our past sins before him, counting on the mercy of the cross, daily yielding ourselves to the power of the Holy Spirit. But what do we make of it? when a Christian who has developed a reputation for consistent godliness and effective leadership and then suddenly falls into disgrace? Or how about the steady Christian father or mother who serves Christ faithfully and then suddenly the wheels fall off, at least so it seems? You know, years ago, a Christian author called this the sinkhole syndrome. And those of us who are aware of sinkholes will know that in in certain parts of the world, Florida would be an example always has a danger of a sinkhole. Seemingly stable ground suddenly opens up and a huge pit in which roads and cars, even houses and other buildings will suddenly fall into the earth and and everyone is shocked. And if we could see what's happening under the surface, we would see that it really is no mystery at all. Usually an underground stream dries up and it creates a cavern. And over the years, weight and vibration and stressors from the surface weakened the place where once a mighty stream flowed. And suddenly the dry and barren cavern collapses, and on the surface, everyone is shocked. And sometimes that's what happens in a life. The life of godliness and passion and prayer and and faith and a hungering after God has long ago vanished, and dry and barren life is all that's left. Life seems to go on as before, and suddenly the ground opens up and a horrible sin is exposed. In our day, that's often sexual, but it can be other things as well. Sometimes a well-known Christian leader openly declares their doubt regarding an essential Christian doctrine, or the greed of a money-centered life is suddenly exposed. And indeed, the three big areas where long-term Christian sin are in the areas of money, sex, and power. And how many a servant of God has lost his or her way over the desire of what money can buy? How many a person of faith has found to have a dark sexual secret that he or she hopes will never be brought to light? And power, well, that one is as devastating as any. For power makes men destroy the lives of others and wreck their careers and their reputation, and use their ability to influence to get what they want in spite of the carnage it does to others. See, I want to talk about sin this week, but not just sin. I want to talk about the kind of sin that brings disgrace to the cause of Christ, harms Christian churches, destroys families, and leaves believers disillusioned and unbelievers openly mocking the faith. 
And perhaps, my dear listener, I'm speaking about you. If you've started out well and have fallen into disgrace, is there no hope for you? If you've harmed others, are you now outside of grace yourself? If you once knew the passion that burns within, the passion to sacrifice all for Christ, but are now an individual who has brought reproach to the sacred name of him whom you claimed as your Savior, is there any hope for you? You know, this one-week series is directed to all of those who have, have lived in the faith and have now found yourself in shame. I want to speak directly to you in a way that, well, perhaps it's going to make you uncomfortable, but I also want to say that if you allow yourself to experience the pain of what I have to say for this one week, I believe that I can offer you hope as well, healing, restoration, a renewed passion for the Lord Jesus Christ. So stay with me for one week. Now, to that end, I've been thinking about King David. There's so many positives to say about him, don't you think? I mean, from the very beginning, he shows himself to be a man after God's own heart. And when Samuel, out of obedience to God, anoints him to be the king, God spoke to Samuel about David. 1 Samuel 16, verse 7 says, For the Lord sees not as man sees. A man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. You know, indeed, the heart of young David is is filled with love for his God and a confidence that he would always count on his God. I mean, those were the days of his young, passionate love for his God. And in the early days, as he faced down the monstrous Goliath on the battlefield, he shouted out, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel. And so here we see him brimming with faith and confidence in his God, staring death in the face and never taking his eyes off the promises of God. And as time went on, King Saul would seek to hunt him down and kill him. But even there, David never became bitter, nor did he question his God by asking how God could have allowed such a thing to happen. Indeed, in this, he never broke his confidence in his God. And as an opportunity arose to kill Saul and thus put an end to all of his personal problems, David rather confidently proclaims, the Lord forbid that I should stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. David will not take justice in his own hands. Indeed, he's confident that if there is deliverance from the irrational and insanely jealous king, it will have to come from the hand of his God. David will rest his future in God's hands and not manipulate matters. This is who he is in his younger days. See, I love David for all of those reasons. His rise to power is characterized by the kind of godly purity that makes him the ideal candidate for the kingship. But even in his early days, we do see some cracks in that portrait, in that especially when it comes to the incident with Nabal. Nabal was a rich fool who refused to pay David any tribute, even though David had protected Nabal's life. In response, David commands his men to strap on their swords, for he will not only murder Nabal, he's going to murder every single one of the men who work for Nabal. Were it not for Abigail, Nabal's wife, David would have carried out this matter. And here is the crack, the the exposure of David's weakness. He has a tendency to abuse power when it's his. And as time went on and as David became king and and began to defeat all of his enemies, that crack in David's holiness grew until it became a fissure. And finally, until it brought disgrace to David, devastated his family, and gave his enemies the much-needed ammunition against him that they needed. 
So let's review the events in David's life. It started in 2 Samuel 11, verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when the kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. You know, much has been made of the fact that all Israel is at war and risking their lives for the kingdom. But David is not. See, the contrast is clear. The men of war are risking their lives for the kingdom, but their leader is at home and at leisure. He's disconnected from the battle. And perhaps David is tired of waging the Lord's battles, or, or perhaps he's sunk into a feeling of entitlement. But whatever was going on in his mind, one thing is clear. David is now leading in a way as he has never done before. He's no longer deeply involved with his men. He has others who do that for him. He's away from the action. He's away from the cry of warfare. His earlier life of faith and dependence upon his God in the day of trouble is now replaced with the luxury that's found in his palace. Something happens when Christian shepherds and and others who lead, maybe on boards or in other areas of church, when they are no longer themselves involved in the ministry. See, I've seen it often. Men who've actively led Bible studies and who've been praying with those in need and were the first responders when God's people needed someone to pray with them or to teach them the way of faithfulness or to give them counsel when they needed to hear it the most. But I have seen these leaders step back and and let others do the heavy lifting while they no longer were involved in the life of God's people but they were still there to make decisions and exercise power because that's who they were. And it's this leadership without involvement in the battle that is the beginning of a great fall. And David, as we are going to find out, was ripe for that. Fall he did, and when he did, the impact of his fall not only devastated him, it devastated the entire kingdom because he was their leader. This month, Dr. John Newfeld will be teaching his new 20-message series on the book of James, Faith That Works. The book of James stands out as unique, sometimes controversial, but in the end it provides truth and instruction critical for the Christian, how to stand up under trials and temptations. What is authentic spirituality? Putting faith into action, issues of the tongue, preventing division, the hazards of money, the importance of prayer. So join us for this insightful series. And remember, the series is available on CD this month at the feature price of $18, including shipping and taxes. But you can also listen online, podcast, or listen to all the Bible teaching programs as they're released by downloading the Back to the Bible Canada mobile app. So to receive James Faith That Works on CD at the feature price of $18, which includes shipping and taxes, visit us online at backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425. Joab and the mighty men were at war, and David, their leader, was at home. His leadership consists, as we will see, in making decisions, but the more he disengages from the battle and in the areas of involvement with his troops, the more he makes decisions for himself. His entitlement is growing even as his involvement is shrinking. Let's continue to read 2 Samuel 11, 2-5. 
It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, and he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I'm pregnant. Now, as a way of explanation, the purifying that's spoken of here is the ritual purification as defined in the book of Leviticus. A woman would undergo a monthly purification after her period, and so David sees her at this moment in her cycle, and of course, that figures into the account, for she's pregnant after their adulterous encounter. And what is of some interest is how David involves others in his kingdom. He sent and inquired of her, the text says. His men were charged with finding out who she was, and they would have also have arranged the liaison. And it's this part of the story that I wish us to see. David has the power in which he doesn't need to hide this from all of his staff. He has loyal people all around him who will defend the king no matter what unethical things they see the king doing. And here we see the next step towards David's fall. The first was that he was a leader, yet disconnected from the fight. Now we see him as a leader, and he has key people who are willing to overlook unethical and sinful behavior in him. The rest of 2 Samuel 11 describes David's steps in in hiding his sin from the kingdom. That David has sinned in involving himself in an adulterous affair, well, that's undeniable. But David now seeks to cover up his immorality. See, up to this point, if the king were to confess his sin, the redemptive loop would have been far easier to address. An open confession to the household of Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, to his own family, and perhaps even to some in his court, would have allowed for reconciliation and for healing. Indeed, as we work our way through the issues of confession and restoration, we're going to address this very theme. See, when leaders sin, or when any believer who has been walking with Christ for some time sins and instantly confesses, the issues at hand are manageable. But many people, including Christian leaders, don't understand this. See, they lie to themselves that it's better to cover up their sin, for if their sin becomes known, well, they can only imagine their own embarrassment and humiliation, the consequences, and the harm to the cause of Christ. And so they tell themselves that they simply must keep this matter quiet. And in the darkness and in the world of secrets, they find themselves subverted. So it was with David. Because of time, we can't retell the entire story, but we do know that in Uriah, the woman's husband, David found a man with greater commitment and integrity than he had. And in desperation to make it look like the child was Uriah's child, he calls Uriah home, and then, of course, Uriah won't sleep with his wife, and so David orders Uriah back onto the battlefield. He orders his commander, Joab, to place Uriah in the most dangerous part of the battle where Uriah falls and dies. And David then quickly marries Bathsheba so that no one will be the wiser that her pregnancy happened before their marriage. This whole sordid affair was his relentless battle to cover up his sin by adding sin to sin. I I know this about sin. 
We may seek to lie to ourselves about our own sin, and and we may attempt to cover it up, but sin will never remain in the dark. It may be that some succeed in hiding their sin for a lifetime. But in Luke 12, verse 3, Jesus said, Nothing is covered that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be made known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. You know, sometimes people are exposed in this life as David was, and sometimes they're not. But as 1 Timothy 5 verse 24 says, the sins of some men are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. Indeed, but they always appear, no exceptions. I know of a few cases of Christian leaders who have sinned and who came forward to confess their sins without even being caught, but those cases are very few and far between. Most are like David. They seek to cover them up, and in vain and in self-deceiving hope, they say to themselves that these sins will never be revealed. 2 Samuel 12 verse 1 begins with a very simple statement. It simply says, And the Lord sent Nathan to David. Now, Nathan and David have a history together. In better times, David summoned Nathan to receive counsel. And since Nathan was a prophet, David called him at a time when he had wanted to build the temple. And although Nathan told David that God had forbidden him from building that temple, still Nathan had revealed to David that God had so ordained it, that the Messiah would sit on David's throne and be one of David's descendants. Nathan's deep understanding of the things of God and of the eternal plans of God made him an indispensable counselor to the royal throne. But this time, Nathan came to David without summons, without being requested. Indeed, Nathan comes not as a request, but as one bearing news for David from God himself. David's sins have not gone unnoticed before the throne of heaven, but rather than simply telling David that he had sinned, Nathan shows David how deep the hypocrisy actually was. You see, Nathan showed David that if any man in his kingdom would have done what David did, David would have condemned him utterly. And in part, that's what the uncovering of our sins reveals. Many a man or a woman excuses sins in him or herself that he or she would have found worthy of condemnation in others. And in this regard, I've noticed two things. You know, first, I've noticed that those who most strongly denounce a perceived sin in others are most often hiding that very sin in themselves. I don't know what it is. There's a a strange psychology at play or perhaps a disgust in themselves that they constantly find it in others. And the second thing I notice is that if any man or woman is finally to receive mercy and grace and shown their own sin, they are often devastated by that. And so it is with David. But Nathan was not done. God had seen that the king's sin and his hypocrisy, and God was determined to let David feel deeply the consequences of his action. Let's let Nathan speak. I'm reading his words recorded in 2 Samuel 12, verses 9 to 11. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord. 
Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. Now, if we're not careful here, we're going to misinterpret what's being said. This week, as we study David coming to terms with his sin, we will find a man deeply remorseful, deeply repentant, deeply humbled. We will find a man mining the depths both of his rebellion against God and also the depths of God's infinite mercy in which he does not throw the sinner away. We will find that to those who have sinned grievously, that there is every reason not to crawl into a hole somewhere, but to repent boldly and to throw oneself unreservedly upon the mercy of God, for his mercy is great. Now, we're going to find that in the end, David is completely and unreservedly forgiven. He's cleansed from all of his sin, and his slate is wiped clean before his God. Why then do the consequences of his sin remain? And the answer has everything to do not with the condemnation of God, but with his mercy. By letting some of the consequences remain, David finds himself humbled, and he learns to trust in his God in the midst of his difficulties. He is going to find that God has not forsaken him at all, and that it really is possible for a sinning Christian to be both forgiven and to be transformed by the cleansing hand of his God. John, the beginning of a great series. Let me ask you to help me with this, the definition thing. I think we all understand forgiveness, and this is something that's available to all that come to Christ. But the whole idea of restoration, is there a difference in how we sort of define what restoration is? Yeah, I mean, I think we would want to say that restoration is offered to everyone. If by that we mean restoration with God and also restoration among the people of God. But I think for some of us, restoration has to include restoration to the kind of ministry that I had before. And and I would say that's not necessarily forthcoming. So, for instance, I mean, the well-known story that we've had heard so many times in the past, you know, somebody who is, let's say, a well-known pastor, evangelist, or, you know, a public personality uh, is involved in sexual sin, should they be restored to the office that they had before? In most cases, I would say the answer is no. But that doesn't mean that they're not enclosed and and accepted and welcomed among God's people. And that's the difference. Thanks so much. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Laugh Again with Phil Calloway will be celebrating its fifth anniversary in 2019. One way we'll be doing that is by inviting you to join us for the Laugh Again 5th Anniversary Caribbean Cruise aboard the Royal Caribbean's Oasis of the Seas. From February 3rd to 10th, join us for a week of laughter, fellowship, and spiritual refreshment. Enjoy music and worship with our special musical guests and morning devotions with Isaac Dagno, leader of In Doubt Ministries. Is it time for a family vacation, a getaway with friends, or time to simply kick back and enjoy all the sights and sounds of the Caribbean? Well, join Phil Calloway and friends this coming February 3rd to 10th for a vacation of a lifetime. For more information, call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or check out laughagain.ca. Laugh Again, 
truth, bringing laughter to life.